A couple of weeks ago, I, well, more like a month ago now it was, that I took my, my brother out to breakfast for his birthday. I like to do that. We don't get together all that often, but on birthdays, we always make it a point to get together. So uh, we were enjoying our meal, our breakfast meal, and it's not often that my brother and I talk about the Bible or religion for that much in general. Don't get me wrong, my brother is a very devout Catholic and uh, he goes to church every week along with his wife and uh, serves in the church. I'm real proud of him. My older brother, I'm real proud of him. But uh, as we were enjoying our meal there together, he asked me the question just out of the blue. He asked me whether I thought that some major event would happen in the world to bring everybody back to church before Jesus returned. And his church is kind of suffering the same I'll call it malaise that every church is suffering, that COVID has chased people away from going to church on a regular basis. And uh, their church is suffering the same things that we all are. So uh, I replied at the time that, you know, if 9-11 didn't do it, and if COVID didn't do it, I'm not so sure anything is going to happen like that before Jesus returns, some event that's going to you know, attract everybody back to church. Furthermore, the Bible seems to show that God is going to do something that's actually going to shake the church. It's going to shake the church like a tree, and God is going to test the faith of all of us who claim to be Christians before Jesus returns. And uh, this event has to do with an individual, referred to here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 as the man of lawlessness. And, uh, you know, Jesus does this every once in a while throughout his ministry, and he still does it. When he senses that people are just kind of hangers-on, remember when uh, he fed the multitude with the bread and the fish, and a day or so after that, he actually questioned those people. He said, you're not following me because you want to know about my teaching. You're following me because I gave you free bread and fish. <laughs> and then at the end of that kind of a monologue, he gave a shocking statement where he said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And it said many people stopped following him. So God has a way of, like I said, kind of shaking the tree to see who falls out of it. And that's what he's going to do in this event here. In 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul had written to the church at Thessalonica and had talked a lot about Jesus' return and pointing them to the future, to that event happening. Now, something happened after that, which caused Paul to write this second letter to the Thessalonians, or Thessalonians rather. And he says here in verse 1, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposedly or supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. So let's stop right there. The church at Thessalonica was confused. Paul had been there, then he had written them a letter, and now there's confusion in the church. 
because it seems that the church had received some false communication, supposedly from Paul, that the second coming of Jesus had already happened. Now you think, well, that's crazy. How could people believe that? Well, don't forget back in those days, there was no security when it came to mail. You know, Paul and some of the others would mail letters to churches, and uh, there were times where false letters showed up. Some wise guy, you know, wanted to confuse the church or disrupt the church, so he would write a letter and sign it with Paul's name or Peter's name or John's name. And then the people would get all confused. So it seems that continually the apostles had to go back and say, listen, you know, the report that you got or the letter that you got was a false letter. It wasn't really from me. And it was only toward the end of uh, Paul's writing that he actually started signing the letters by his own hand. Now you might think, how could these people possibly think that the second coming of Jesus Christ had already happened? Well, that's what the letter supposedly said. And you know what? It's not impossible to, to be deceived that way. <clears throat> there is a church that exists today called the Jehovah's Witnesses. I think you've all heard of them. They're the ones famous for going door to door and trying to get into discussions on the Bible with you. And they're trained, you know, to, to teach the teachings of their group, which in many ways differ from what the Bible teaches and from what we believe. But did you know that the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus has already returned? They predicted in the year 1874 that Jesus was going to return. And when Jesus did not return in the year 1874, they changed their prediction to the year 1914. Now, when 1914 came and went and Jesus didn't return, they came up with a doctrine and proclaimed that he did return invisibly, so no other return of Jesus is to be expected. In other words, the return that the Bible talks about of Jesus Christ already happened, and the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that. But we don't believe that because the Bible doesn't teach that. I think that they came up with that doctrine to kind of cover their prediction that went wrong. That's why we don't any longer make predictions about when we think Jesus is going to return. And you know what? We as a, a denomination used to do that. And we used to, to teach, and many of you remember, that in the 70s, Jesus was going to return at that time. And of course, he didn't. So we got burned by making wrong and uh, dumb predictions. We don't do it anymore. But anyway, Paul says, listen, it was a false letter, a false communication that you got. Jesus has not returned. He goes on to say in verse 3, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Okay, that's good to know. <laughs> uh, now, Here's the thing, Paul had talked to this church personally when he was there, and he filled them in on a lot of the details. So he doesn't take the time in this letter now to rehearse all the details. He just gives us some details as to this man of lawlessness and what he's all about. But one thing we do know, that Jesus is not going to return until this man makes his presence known, until he shows up. 
Now, in this case, he's not called Antichrist. He is called the man of lawlessness. But we're going to see a scripture in just a moment. What John writes in one of his epistles, and he refers to the person as Antichrist. So Paul says that Jesus won't return until a certain event happens and a certain person appears. The event he calls the rebellion. And it comes from the word apostasy. The Greek word apostasy. And that's the same word that is used to describe what the Israelites did back in the Old Testament. When they turned from God. They turned away from God. And as uh, we just saw in the uh, video here, he talked about them going into captivity, being conquered by a neighboring nation, and the people being taken away as prisoners, prisoners of war. So the event is called the rebellion or the apostasy. The person is called the man of lawlessness or the rebel. And even though Paul doesn't call him the Antichrist, this is evidently who he is. Antichrist means either against Christ or in place of Christ. That's what Antichrist means. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. Not the Gospel of John, but the first epistle of John, back toward the book of Revelation. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 18. Okay. Obviously, that is not the scripture. (laughs) Somebody help me here. Verse 18. Yeah. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. In other words, we're living in the end time, John says. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. So here he's referring to the same individual, but he calls him here Antichrist. Even now, in John's day, many Antichrists have come. So the Bible predicts one major individual, but he says, you know, for all intents and purposes, there have been many people who have come along who are opposed to Jesus Christ or who have claimed to be a Messiah and really weren't. There are many Antichrists have come. He says, this is how we know it is the last hour They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So John warns us to expect the coming of this individual. He will be in the world before he emerges into public view, but only when the rebel is revealed, that's when the rebellion is going to break out. Okay, back to 2 Thessalonians now, chapter 2. And we'll pick it up in verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you. So just as people were deceived in Paul's day and in John's day, people can still be confused today. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. 
So this is going to be quite a person. Quite a person. So he's the man of lawlessness, or the lawless one. He's going to be defiant of all law, which means moral law. In other words, there's no such thing as moral absolutes. It's kind of like the direction our society is going already and has been going for a long time. And he's going to be opposed to civil law. He's going to be advocating anarchy in the name of freedom. Now, Jesus predicted at the end time, notice what he said. I'm going to turn to Matthew 24 and verse 12. Matthew 24 and verse 12, Jesus said this. He's talking about the end times, and he said, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So he's talking about the end time, but he says here in verse 12, because of the increase of wickedness, and that's what the man of lawlessness is to bring to society, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. So even Jesus seemed to be talking about this individual coming on the scene and how he is going to usher in a time of lawlessness. So it's going to be a time of great confusion, rebellion, and so on. So back here to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says that this individual is going to oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up, he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, some people think that this means that another temple is going to be built in Jerusalem. Not necessarily. Because setting up another temple in Jerusalem is actually going to be an attempt to set up the whole Old Testament system of sacrifices again. And I don't think that that's God's purpose. God is pointing everybody now to Jesus Christ. And there no longer needs to be any sacrifices, and there no longer needs to be any temple. So what could Paul be talking about possibly? Well, in Ephesians 2, verse 19, he says that the temple of God is now the church. Ephesians 2, and verse 19, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. A holy temple. He's talking about the church. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So when it talks about this individual coming on the scene and establishing himself in God's temple, it seems to be talking about the church. That somehow he is going to place himself, supposedly, in rulership over what has been the church. So I think that the warning here for this individual to come on the scene and to have sway and to be able to deceive people He's not talking about the tried and true Christians, the Christians who are born again, the Christians who not only talk the talk, but walk the walk. I think 
who is going to be mostly affected here in a negative way is the so-called Christians, the nominal Christians, Christians in name only, Christians who don't have a deep abiding relationship with Jesus Christ as their savior. You know, the relationship that I've trying to, been, trying to be leading you to these past many years, a deeper and deeper relationship with him, to be talking to him regularly in prayer, to be worshiping him regularly at church, to be reading his word on a regular basis. You know, when I read about prophecies like this of, of very difficult times coming with many people being deceived right out of religion and perhaps right out of Christianity, it makes me want to draw closer to God with all my might. You know, we talk about the trunk of the tree, you know, doctrine, orthodox doctrine, the belief that Jesus Christ is our savior, that we're saved by grace through his sacrifice. I just want to hold on to that truth with all of my might and not be shaken from it. But it's obvious that some people are going to be shaken. Some people are going to be deceived by this individual. Paul doesn't specify what form the rebellion will take, but like I said, the word apostasy used for this rebellion is the same word to describe what Israel did, his, their rebellion against God and God's law. That's the kind of rebellion that is going to take place. This man is going to oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshiped so that he sets himself up in God's temple does that mean over the church? Proclaiming himself to be God. And it's a, it's a troubling trend, you know, as we see fewer and fewer people coming to church on a regular basis. You know, where is their heart and where is their mind? They seem to be straying. Is, is this part of the rebellion that is prophesied to take place? I think it's going to get worse when this one individual comes on the scene. So back here to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, now in verse 5. Let's read on a little further. He goes on to say, don't you remember that when I was with you, the last time I visited you in Thessalonia, I used to tell you these things. So that's why Paul doesn't give us all the little details of this thing happening with this person and this rebellion because he had already rehearsed it with them. I want to say to Paul, give us the information too. <laughs> you know, we weren't there, so explain in more detail, please. But he doesn't. He just gives, gives them an overview of what he had already told them in person. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? So maybe on more than one occasion, he had discussed it with them. And he says, and now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. So there's something at work that is holding this individual back, this antichrist, this man of lawlessness, so he can't come on the scene yet. So Paul had told them what is holding him back, but he's not sharing that information with us. So we don't know what it is. Paul had previously taught them about the man of lawlessness by word of mouth. So here he introduces him without further explanation to us. And he sees no need to repeat what he had already taught them. We're not privy to all that background information. Unfortunately, I would have liked to have known. 
So Paul doesn't tell them exactly who this person is going to be. And furthermore, he doesn't tell them who or what is holding this person back from coming on the scene. Now, we don't try to name names and think, well, it's probably going to be so-and-so, you know, this world leader or this individual uh, somewhere in the world who's going to come on the scene and be the Antichrist or, or the man of lawlessness. I want to read uh, something that I read in a book here. You know, Christians throughout the ages have named names and made predictions and said, well, I think it's going to be this guy or I think it's going to be that guy. And all the predictions down through the ages of Christianity have failed. This author writes this. After the demise of the persecuting emperors of the Roman Empire and the conversion of Emperor Constantine, the Roman emperor no longer seemed a suitable candidate to be targeted and predicted to be the Antichrist. At first, one or other of the Vandal leaders who raided Roman provinces and finally sacked Rome around 455 AD looked anti-Christian enough to be the Antichrist in the Middle Ages, especially at the time of the Crusades. The Western Church identified the man of lawlessness as Muhammad because he had stolen the Christian holy places and caused many Eastern Christians to commit apostasy. Toward the end of the Middle Ages, some of the Franciscans saw in the corrupt popes and their proud pretensions an expression of the one who would exalt himself and set himself up in God's sanctuary. While at the beginning of the 13th century, Emperor Frederick II and Pope Gregory IX found satisfaction in calling each other the Antichrist. <laughs> the early reformers, Wycliffe in England and the Waldensians in Italy and John Huss in Bohemia all referred to the prophecy to the Pope, or rather to particular popes on account of their corruption, whereas with great exegetical insight, the 16th century reformers, including Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli on the continent of Europe, Knox in Scotland, and Cranmer in England, believed that the papacy itself was the Antichrist. The Roman Catholic leaders of the Counter-Reformation then returned the compliment by identifying Martin Luther as the man of sin. The identification of the Pope as Antichrist continued at least into the 17th century. The Westminster Confession, for example, affirms that the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church and not the Pope, who is rather that man of sin and son of perdition that exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. During the last two centuries, political rather than religious leaders have been put forward as possible Antichrists. Candidates have included Napoleon Bonaparte, Napoleon III, Kaiser Wilhelm, Hitler, Mussolini, and Stalin, and certainly strong elements of both godlessness and lawlessness have been seen in these men. Bring it down to our day today, and it's gotten so divisive in politics that members of one party think the, other, the, the president from the other party is the Antichrist, or vice versa. It's crazy. And all of the predictions are wrong. <laughs> All of the predictions have been wrong down through the ages and even to our time today. So don't come up to me and say, well, Pastor John, who do you think is the Antichrist? I don't know. None of us knows. But uh, as the story goes on, when it happens, we're all going to know. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, we're going to know. Back here to 2 Thessalonians now. 
Chapter 2, and we'll look at verse 6. He says, and now you know what is holding him back. No, Paul, we don't know. You haven't told us exactly what is holding him back. Because he's not going to make his appearance until God says, okay, now it's time. And then whatever is holding him back is going to stop holding him back, and he is going to come on the scene. So the rebellion is not going to take place until the chief rebel has come on the scene. Two processes are going on simultaneously. On the one hand, the secret power of lawlessness is at work now behind the scenes. And on the other hand, a restraining influence is also at work, preventing the secret rebelliousness from breaking out into open rebellion. And only when this control is lifted will the apostasy take place, followed by the return of Jesus Christ. So again, he says, verse 7, For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So in other words, the appearance of this individual is going to usher in the return of Jesus. And Jesus is going to just wipe this person out when he returns. He says, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. Let's talk first about the nature of what could be holding this man back. Because in verse 6, it mentions what is holding him back. And in verse 7, it talks about who is holding him back. So that's a little confusing. And that's left Christians kind of clueless throughout the centuries. Who or what is holding this guy back from coming on the scene? But Paul's Thessalonian readers knew what the restraining influence was since he had regularly taught them about these things. But there's four points about the power that is holding this man back from coming on the scene. First of all, the power is at work now and is effectively holding back the appearance of the individual. And it's been holding him back since the days of Paul, about 2,000 years ago. Secondly, it may also be referred to as he. Not what is holding him back, but who is holding him back. The restraint is both neuter in one verse, it's a thing, and masculine in another verse means that it's a person. So it could be a, a person and a force that is holding him back from coming on the scene. Thirdly, at the right time, this it or he will be removed, and this removal will usher in the appearance of the Antichrist and start the apostasy. And number four, there must be a reason Paul only writes about these matters in such guarded terms. It could very well be that they thought that it was the Emperor Nero who was ruling at the time that Paul lived and the Thessalonian church was alive. So you can imagine that Paul didn't want to write a lot of details in this letter because if the letter was intercepted by Roman officials, they would take it as being negative against the emperor. And you don't do anything like that back in those days because you're going to be arrested and maybe even put to death. Sedition against the government, sedition against the emperor. You know, they thought that this, this guy was a god. The Romans did. 
So that's probably why we're sifting through little details here. And Paul doesn't come right out and say it, that I think that the lawless one is that nasty old emperor Nero sitting on the throne. It could be that at the time they thought he was the one because he fulfills a lot of the predictions about what this guy is going to do. So when the restraint is finally removed, we can expect a period of political, social, and moral chaos in which both God and law are treated as nothing until suddenly Jesus will appear and overthrow him. So most likely what this individual is going to say is, you know what? The Christian religion, the Jewish religion, the Muslim religion, it's all fairy tales. It's all fairy tales. This individual could possibly say, you know, I was the one who created all this. I am the one to be worshipped. And you think, that's crazy. Who would believe a guy like that? Well, as the, the prophecy goes on, most people are going to believe him. And most people are going to worship him. This warning is to Christians saying, don't believe people who come along like this. Stand true to your faith. You know what you believe. You believe that God is the creator and Jesus is going to return. In fact, when this guy comes on the scene, we're going to know for sure that Jesus is soon to return. It's just going to be a, matter, a short matter of time. So back to verse 9 now. And this is probably going to end up being a two-part sermon. He says, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kind of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. So one of the reasons that a lot of people are going to be beguiled by this individual and believe him, believe that he truly is God and he truly should be worshipped, is that Satan is going to give him power to perform miracles. And that's just going to blow people away. So both God and Satan will be actively involved behind the scenes in relation to the coming of the Antichrist. Satan is going to empower this individual and give him the ability to perform miracles, and God is going to allow it to happen. Why? Because God is performing, if you will, a final test for who truly is a Christian and who isn't. Although the Antichrist does not seem to be Satan, he will strongly be supported and empowered by Satan. Now, notice here in verse 9, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan. This word coming is the same word to describe Jesus' return in uh, chapter 1, verse 7. Let's see here. Chapter 1, verse 7, he talks about, uh, He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed. Now, we know when Jesus returns, it's going to be spectacular. The whole world is going to know what's happening. It's going to be an overwhelming experience, the kind that the world has never seen before. That is the same word that describes the coming of the lawless one. So when this guy appears, however he is going to appear, it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be amazing. It's going to wow people. 
something is planned to make this guy's arrival earth-shaking. So everybody's going to know that this guy is, is something special. Because the same word to describe his arrival is the same word that describes Jesus' arrival. So Satan is going to present this individual to make some people think that this could be Jesus Christ returning. And that's why people are going to be confused. And on top of that, this guy is going to be given a temporary power to perform miracles. So people are going to be confused. Some people are going to think, wow, this is the one that we should worship. This is the creator. This is the one with all power. He, look, he's performing miracles. But as the scripture says here, they're fake miracles. They're not empowered by God. They're empowered by Satan himself. So keep that in mind. Jesus will be revealed from heaven so from where is Antichrist going to be revealed from? I've thought about that. Is he just going to be a guy that's going to show up one day, come out of a house or come out of a building, and wham, there he is? Or is his arrival going to be kind of like Jesus' arrival? Is he going to come from someplace else? I've wondered about that. So Satan's purpose with Antichrist may be to present a parody of Jesus' return kind of a fake second coming of Jesus. Just as the ministry of Jesus was accredited by miracles, wonders, and signs, so the, the ministry of Antichrist will be accompanied by, though not authenticated by, miracles. Because his miracles are counterfeit, they're designed to deceive rather than to enlighten. Jesus' miracles were for people to see and then to look to him and say, this must be the Son of God. This must be the Messiah. With Antichrist's miracles, he's out to deceive people. So both comings, the Antichrist as well as Jesus Christ, will be personal, visible, and powerful. Tragically, the coming of Antichrist will be such a clever parody of the coming of Jesus that many will be taken in by the clever satanic deception. And I fear many nominal Christians. Christians who don't read their Bibles. Christians who, you know, to them God isn't all that important. They like to call themselves Christians so, you know, their friends will respect them a little bit more. But these are the people that God is going to shake out of the tree. And it's going to be a powerful test. And we all better be on the ball and we all better be in close contact with God. Especially when this starts to happen. Notice in verse 10. It says, the reason that they are deceived. How can these, possible be, these people possibly be, de be deceived by all this? Well, first of all, it's going to be very overwhelming. But it says here, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So the reason that they're deceived is that they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. The gospel was offered to them, but they rejected it. Behind the great deception is the great refusal by people. To hear the gospel, to respond to it, to repent, and to accept Jesus as their savior. And once the gospel is refused, God sends them a strong delusion so that they'll believe a lie. As it says in verse 11, for this reason, God, God is the one who allows this. It's according to God's purpose that this all happens. 
God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. So Paul equates denying the truth with delighting in wickedness and they'll be condemned for it. So the downward path begins with the love of evil which leads to the rejection of the truth, the deception of the devil, a hardening by God, and a final condemnation. Now we're still living in the time of restraint. Whoever this individual is, is still being held back. We don't know for how much longer. We're still living in the time of restraint in which the secret power of lawlessness is being held in check. Next will come the time of rebellion in which the control of law will be removed and the lawless one will be revealed. Finally will come the time of retribution in which Jesus will return to defeat and destroy Antichrist and those who have followed him will be condemned. That's part one of the sermon. We'll get into it a little bit more deeply next time. But it certainly is sobering. It's very sobering because, you know, God is, is going to shake the tree. He's going to see who falls out. And uh, we need to make sure that we have both arms held tightly around the trunk of the tree, which is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this scripture. And uh, even though we don't know all the details of this prophecy and how it will be fulfilled, we do know that we need to be on guard constantly. We as Christian soldiers are never to let up. We're never to lose our focus. We're to draw closer to you on a daily basis. So help us to do that, Father. We don't want to be part of the ones that are confused and led astray. We want to be the ones who remain loyal to you to the very end. So Father, we can do that through your power. We know that you've sealed us with the Holy Spirit and we just pray, Father, that we take these messages soberly. So thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.